Hi, I'm Jake Parker, and this is my podcast, Beyond Fit. My goal is to help you live a happier and healthier life by providing actionable knowledge and advice about a wide range of health and fitness topics. You can find me most active on Instagram at jakeparker.fit if you want to connect or just see what I'm up to. Hi, guys. This is Jake Parker back on the Beyond Fit podcast. My guest today is Dr. Mike Nelson, who we've shared a little bit of back and forth, but just pretty much just getting to know each other here. I told him I first found him on one of my favorite podcasts, Barbell Shrugged. Uh, if you guys listened to the episode about a month ago that came out with Honors Varnar, he is the host of that podcast. But Mike has been on a lot of other podcasts that I like, including Muscle Intelligence, that's Ben Pakulski's, and a handful of other ones here. I believe maybe you've also been on Mike Matthews, who's uh, yes. one of my favorite podcasts. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Good dude. And so um, I'll just, uh, I got your. Um, the information that was forwarded to me here uh, with all your credentials, but it's, it's, it's quite broad. And so I'll just go ahead and <laughs> if you want to highlight a few of the things that you think are most relevant to your education experience and kind of what you're all about in a, in a succinct way. Yeah. So probably did more college than I needed to did a bachelor of arts, in natural science, and then did a master's in actually mechanical engineering, looking more at uh, heat transfer biomechanics, uh, did some work in a PhD in biomedical, ended up transferring over to kinesiology, exercise phys, and then finished a PhD there in exercise physiology, metabolism, looking at metabolic flexibility and heart rate variability. And right now I'm a associate professor at the Kerrig Institute for clinical neuroscience, helping them more with nutrition and on the human performance program, which we developed with them. And then buddies, Freddy's Garcia, Joe Clark, and Dr. Kenneth Jay. I teach online also for Rocky Mountain University, do some other course creation, and I'm the creator of the Flex Diet Certification. Okay. And I don't think I'm familiar. What part of the country are you in? I'm in Minnesota right now. Oh, okay. Okay. So recording this in September, fall. So it's a nice time. It's a little bit cooler out mm -hmm. and leaves are changing. And I try to do a lot of kiteboarding too. So now is the season that nice. starts to get a little windy again. So. That's good. Nice. So I guess one of the first questions is something that comes up a lot on the podcast is the balance between the scientific and evidence-based knowledge versus what can actually be applied and practiced by people. So I was checking out some of your recent podcasts and you mentioned how I think you were discussing the flex diet certification where you have action steps for people in mm -hmm. every. And so how do you mix? Obviously, you have a lot of technical knowledge and have a lot of formal education. How do you make that accessible to people and help people to apply this knowledge to their everyday life? Yeah, I think the key point you said there is applied knowledge. If, if you're a pure academic, you get kind of rewarded for just the creation of facts and accumulation of knowledge. It may or may not necessarily need to be applied. Um, so I worked in industry for a while. I worked in about 10 years in the medical device industry. And research there was generally in a lot of corporations is divided into basic research, which I view as kind of like the academics, like we're looking at stuff just to figure out what's going on and to learn more about the world. It may or may not be directly applicable. We don't really know where it's going to go. Um, and there's also that a whole division of applied research. So we're going to look at this specific modality and see does this thing help or not. I think it's kind of the same way. I try to kind of close the gap between 
academics and practitioners, because I think there's still kind of a gap between those two. And part of that is because when I was at the University of Minnesota in the lab there, the running joke was people would come in because we would teach uh, undergrad classes, 400 level exercise phys. And they would ask, you know, very like training related questions, you know, hey, is this a good exercise or a bad exercise, things mm -hmm. like that. The running joke in the lab was they would always just refer them over to me. So even though there was other PhD students in exercise physiology in the lab, they didn't really train people and had no desire to ever train people. You know, one of them was mm -hmm. looking at the effects of exercise, um, cachexia and cancer. Uh, so exercise phys, but not necessarily performance. So I, I liked that interface where, yeah, what does the research say? Can we take some information from there? You know, what are kind of the people on the experience side say, and where do those two overlap? Uh, another mm -hmm. way to think about it is uh, research versus me-search. So research will kind of get you in the direction to go, and there's definitely a time and place to do that. Um, but what most people want is the answer is, well, what works for me, right, right of N, N of 1? So that's kind of more me-search. You can look at the research or work with a coach or someone or use a system and okay, here's the area we kind of need to start. Okay, so now here's your next three action items for you to make it more specific to you as an individual to get you to the, the goal that you want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the hang up for me is like you were asking about my audience before and I, I told you mostly people that are, you know, gym goers, people that are above average fitness and are caring about improving their knowledge and, and like you said, the knowledge that they can apply. But the thing I get hung up on is I enjoy talking about stuff like I mentioned to you, fasting, cold therapy, yeah. things like that. And it's really interesting. But the, the caveat is I think that you have to, to a large extent, have the big things down, like somewhat of a balance of your calories and macronutrients and some sort of consistent exercise routine and the thing is where what i think is frustrating is if you just look towards just popular diet culture it's all about oh you need to do if you you know if you were doing cold therapy you'd you'd lose all your fat or if you were doing fasting you know intermittent fasting is what's going to melt fat away but it's like no not really it's definitely interesting it has interesting implications but it's important to have this 80 to 90 percent of stuff down first before you look at that sort of stuff yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, I mean, especially if you're looking at the goals of fat loss and performance, mm -hmm. right? So a lot of people are super interested in all sorts of different recovery metrics. And there's a time and place for measuring HRV and, you know, doing cold water and sauna and breathing techniques and everything else. But if you're not really training, then <laughs> what are you trying to recover from? Um, I mean, I have used some of that stuff in clients that are like super high stress, mm -hmm. you know, just because their stress level is super high. So we may use some of those things to try to reduce their overall stress level so that they actually can get to the gym and apply a more specific stress. Um, but I think everyone wants to look at the what's kind of sexy and the basics of work for a long time, but they mm -hmm. tend to be boring. And that's that doesn't really sell, uh, especially nutrition diet books. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you the have other, to demonize thing, one macronutrient at least. So. Right, right, of course. The other thing I like that you said uh, in checking out your podcast is it's something I think about a lot too is you're like, well, people people have to eat. So, yeah. you know, it's it's like it's one of those things that I think it especially resonates with me because part of the reason why I like to share now 
what I'm learning and the things that I know is because I struggled for so long, especially like in teenage years with not understanding how nutrition works. And now that I do, I want to spread that knowledge to people because I know how neurotic and anxious it can make you. Because even if, like you say, you have to eat every day. So even if you have these preconceptions and these neuroticisms around food, you have to figure out something to do. So I think that it would be worth it for everybody to delve into what sort of what sort of way they should format their diet that works for them and what sort of principles they should try to use for, you know, something you're going to do for the rest of your life. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. It's, we, they kind of have the option for better or worse to exercise or not. And mm-hmm. even high level athletes, you know, may not necessarily exercise every day either. Uh, but most people, unless you're doing fasting or something else, you're eating three to five times per day. Or even if you are fasting, you're surrounded by all sorts of food cues, just, mm-hmm. you know, maybe not so much now, but going to the grocery store, just going out anywhere, media, social media. I mean, you can't really get away from someone trying to sell you some type of food or offer it or social situations. So yeah, I agree. It's one of those things. It's a, I would put that up there in your lifelong skills to work on acquiring because it's, mm-hmm. It's going to be useful. And the hard part too, I was just talking to a client the other day about this is that, you know, she's worked really hard and she's done really well and it's taken her, you know, probably about a year to kind of change her viewpoints of, of food. And she had a week where she didn't really track a lot of stuff and yeah, she gained a little bit of weight, but it wasn't really that bad. Mm-hmm. And she realized that she didn't feel that good. So now she's already back on more of a quote unquote healthier, I guess you could say approach. Uh, where in the past that was just that those thoughts never entered her brain really you know so i think if you can get people to that point which does take a fair amount of time and effort at least now they have the awareness of oh yeah i had eight beers and fell into a birthday cake last night mm-hmm. and i feel like crap today or before it was like oh i don't know that's just a friday night mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know so i think awareness is a big thing and then you can build skill sets on top of that Yeah. And I think that there's probably a distinct difference in, because luckily I've dialed in so many routines and habits that I have a certain way of eating, whether I choose to track macros more closely or not, I have a general, you know, principles and guidelines that I follow and it tends to stay pretty similar. But I think that one thing people notice if they start to make big changes to their diet is like you say, it's just, you don't feel like shit so often it's you know you're, you're eating more whole foods and i think that that kind of stuff can get you a long way even if someone doesn't want to look at macros well think about stuff that is not heavily processed that's whole natural food stuff that you would find you know in it's in its relatively natural source and just doing that you're probably going to feel so much better and think so much more clear so it becomes like a positive feedback loop it's like well of course i'm going to eat like this now because it just makes me feel so much better aside from the other benefits like body composition and things of that nature yeah, your nervous system is wired just to be comparison, right? So if you've always felt eh, kind of crappy, not the greatest mm-hmm. energy, on one level, you, you kind of, you consciously kind of know it, but you don't have anything else to compare it to. So you kind of just brush it off. Um, so obviously, I said I'm here in Minnesota. So if you come visit in the winter, you're outside and you come inside, you're like, oh, wow, it was really cold outside. Woo, mm-hmm. It's like really warm in here. And normally we keep it like, 64 degrees or something so mm-hmm. more on the the cooler side if you're hanging out inside for many hours you're probably like oh wow it's it's kind of cold in here right mm-hmm. you need that sort of comparison of oh it was 20 below and now it's 65 degrees there's an 85 degree difference within like four seconds mm-hmm. right? you sometimes need that comparison to bring about a higher level of awareness 
And then once they have that awareness, you know, then you can kind of build from there. Yeah, it's exactly like living in Nebraska. Like whenever I've had relatives or friends or some sort of connection to people that live in like the South, California, Texas, Florida, stuff like that. It's they, they think that 55 degrees is cold. They put in a jacket, whereas here, especially if it's in like the dead of winter, 55 is like, hey, get out your get out your swimsuit pretty much. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I usually go to, we go down to South Padre, Texas, a fair amount in mm -hmm. kind of spring and fall. And I'll hopefully go back again this fall. And it can, you know, it's usually warmer there for sure, but it can get a little bit cold. You can get a northerly that comes through and it can get kind of, you know, in the upper 40s, low 50s. Uh, so I'll get up in the morning and usually go run on the beach, regardless of the temperature or the weather. It'll be like 55 degrees and I'm just, you know, running in a pair of shorts. I'm like, oh, this is mm -hmm. great. I'm out on the beach. Here's the ocean. Here's the sun. And you see locals come by with like hats and hoods yeah. <laughs> and look like it's like the, the dead of winter and they're all pointing at you and like, who's the crazy guy? Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, so based on other stuff that I, that I said we wanted to get to here, I'm curious about obviously something you've talked about a ton, which is the, um, your flex diet program. And so explain what exactly that means. I know that uh, it's essentially the combination of looking at metabolic flexibility and then the combination of that with flexible dieting. And so on kind of a base level, uh, the, the way I would define metabolic flexibility is just how essentially one handles carbs versus fats and kind of the more high intensity exercise versus low intensity. I don't know a ton about it. What are, what are some of the big points you like to hit in, in discussing metabolic flexibility? How does that play into your flex diet certification? Yeah, so the flex diet certification is a mashup between um, metabolic flexibility and flexible dieting. I wanted to set up a system of eight different interventions, more on the nutrition and recovery side. So people or trainers know exactly uh, where to start with clients because it's a very confusing world and everybody has the quote unquote, the answer. And the reality is you probably need a system and a framework to try to manage all that to get uh, something custom for the person in front of you. Uh, it's like if you go to the bowling alley and you're trying to stay within one lane, you can kind of inflate the little bumpers on the side, mm -hmm. right? So you're kind of giving them a system to, to play in. And metabolic flexibility is exactly what you said. How well does your body use fats as a fuel and how well does it use carbohydrates? If we simplify everything, those are in essence, the main two fuel sources. You can get into lactate and ketones and some other stuff that are byproducts. Um, but everything goes to ATP and fats and carbs are the main two fuels. Uh, most of your, I guess you could say standard diet books will usually demonize one or the other, right? And I've probably been around long enough to see the, the low fat, you know, mm -hmm. craze and now the high fat craze. And the reality is if you want health performance and body comp, you want to be able to deal with both. So if we're just kind of hanging out, having this conversation, you know, fat's going to be a much better fuel than carbohydrates. It is true. You know, we can use carbohydrates to do that also. However, if we go to the gym and do some crazy rowing, some intervals, some weight training, some old school Bill Starr five by five on deadlifts or what have mm -hmm. you, you definitely want the ability to use carbohydrates because that's going to help you with energy production and it's going to make your lifting not feel quite as, as horrible or rowing or intensity work, CrossFit, whatever you're doing. So the reality is you want to use both. It just depends upon what you're doing at that point. Um, so your body, a healthy person, their body, assuming they have ample amounts of fat and ample amounts of carbohydrates, 
we'll actually kind of self-select what is uh, the best one. Uh, but you can do different things to emphasize uh, both ends of the spectrum. And while it's a, I'd say it's an oversimplification, uh, using fat is going to be a little bit better for body composition, right? Because at some level, you want to use fat as a fuel. And of mm. course, calories and everything else still matter. However, you still want enough carbohydrates to have enough intensity to drive the ability to gain you know, lean body mass or at least maintain it. And then also just for day-to-day -day motivation. You know, and most people are not going to go to the gym or train or exercise and watch their performance get worse and worse over time. I mean, to me, that's just very demotivating. It's mm -hmm. nice to see slow progress week to week, month to month. So as far as like timing is concerned, I know that, again, I, I have a pretty strong based knowledge of this stuff and where nice. fats are more um, slow digesting than carbs. And so how does the timing factor in, like you say, if you were going to go do, let's say, a highly intensive workout in the gym, how much would you try to have someone prioritize the timing of in which they're having a, a carb source? Yeah, so the main thing is, you know, making sure they have the right amount of calories. Um, if they're on high enough calories and carbohydrates, eh, the reality is they just don't have to worry. They're going to have more mm -hmm. than enough. Um, I've worked with some, you know, semi-competitive CrossFit athletes and uh, one guy in particular, not a big guy, super strong. You know, he was at 530 grams of carbs a day. So he's pretty much eating carbohydrates all the time. Mm -hmm. um, where it gets a little bit trickier, especially if you have someone trying to prioritize more fat loss and they're not using as many calories overall and their carbohydrates are on the lower end of the spectrum, you know, say like 120, 130 total per day. Uh, in that case, I do find timing matters a little bit more, where I will prioritize some carbohydrates uh, before and after training. Um, part of that is when we have a high bolus or high intake of carbohydrates, we're pushing the body to have higher levels of insulin. When insulin is higher, it actually pushes us to use more carbohydrates. So I find that if you're on a lower-ish carbohydrate approach for whatever reason, uh, having them around your training just seems to mitigate stress a little bit more. People tend to feel a little bit better. Performance is a, a little bit better. So most people, I would say, if you look at what their plans look like, most people are going to have carbohydrates before and after training. They may have them at other meals too. just depends upon the total amount. Um, where it gets tricky and very messy is if you look at the research and you say, does nutrient timing in regards to strength training Mm -hmm. Does that actually really matter? Eh, it's pretty split, right? Some of the early studies from Paul Cribb's lab showed that it made a huge difference. Uh, some of the follow-up uh, studies, eh, not that much of a, a difference. So is it, I would say, hypercritical? Not really. But remember that when we're looking at research studies, like, for example, in the Paul Cribb study, they are only looking at differences in timing, they're not looking at differences in macronutrient amounts mm -hmm. or how much you're consuming, right? So, you know, a lot of standard advice for people listening would be, yeah, I would say play around with some protein and carbohydrates before and after training. I think you're probably going to do better for most people. The caveat, since I would recommend that, would be that I actually changed three variables, right? So they're probably consuming more protein now. They're probably consuming more carbohydrates. And I also change timing, right? So I may even, depending on what they're eating, I may even change quality or micronutrient. So I've actually changed three things. 
And does that usually get people a better result? Yes. Um, in the research in the Paul Cribb study, they took the exact same protein, carbohydrate, I believe creatine. They gave one group before training and after. The other group, they gave them the exact same thing in the morning and in the evening. So they only changed timing. They didn't change uh, quality or quantity. I think that's where people get really tripped up. And the last part too is that in most of the timing studies, even the ones that didn't show a huge benefit, they didn't show a negative either, right? So there's not much of a downside to doing it. The upside, yeah, we could maybe split hairs and you know have a few more beers and argue about it for mm. a couple hours. So, yeah, I like I like your point about about it does it or does it not change the overall quantity of food because it reminds me of like so essentially my background is I've always kind of looked at health and fitness uh, through like the bodybuilding lens and I've always been very focused on maximizing body composition and where it came from was from an early age like 14 or 15 I was super interested in bodybuilding and like this was 10 years ago so it was definitely the time when like the bodybuilding.com forums were the main source of information (laughs) and so you hear stuff like about the the benefits of pre and post workout nutrition. And so I was all about that sort of stuff. It was like, oh, okay, I gotta get my protein shake. And then an hour later, I'm gonna have my post workout meal. And of course, yeah. an hour before I had my pre workout meal. And something I realize now, like I said, with a, a lot more overall um, understanding of the information and some self education is, oh, well, the reason I was never seeing the physique and body composition goals that I wanted is because I was just probably consuming way too many calories because if I have my normal structure of meals and then I'm like, Oh, I I hear that you have to prioritize pre and post workout uh, meals as two. Well, that's just going to end up being just a lot of eating in a day. And so like, like you say, I think that probably the the best thing for people to focus on is if you have a normal, normal calorie intake, have a reasonable amount of carbs, I, I probably wouldn't focus too much on do you have the perfect poster pre-workout nutrition and something I heard, I, I believe that Alan Argon um, was, he, was someone I heard talking about this, but like the idea of a Perry workout window where it's mm-hmm. like, if you have a solid meal uh, with carbs and protein in it within five hours of your workout, whether that's before or after that's going to be fine for the vast majority of people. Again, unless you're talking about someone specific, like an athlete, like a CrossFit athlete, stuff like that, of course, they're going to have their own unique needs. Yeah, I agree. And if you're eating, let's say even four times per day, right? You have breakfast, maybe you have a meal like around lunchtime, you've got a meal maybe later afternoon, and then maybe one in the evening. And you train mid afternoon, by by definition, you had a pre and post meal, mm-hmm. right? And so that's where it gets kind of messy with what exactly are we looking at with that? The original theory came from actual carbohydrate uh, loading. You can go back and look at uh, John Ivey's book on that. And with carbohydrates and endurance athletes, if you're doing um, two-a-days or you're doing super high training volume, uh, that can definitely make a pretty big difference for more mm-hmm. elite-level athletes. If I have someone who is, for example, doing uh, football or you know hockey, NHL practice, something like that, a lot of times, especially off-season, They've got a pretty long skill session and they've got some activity in the gym. And a lot of times just for what their schedule is, they, those may only be separated by like two hours. So if you're doing very exhaustive exercise in the gym and then you have to go do an exhaustive session right after that, yeah, having some faster acting, potentially protein and especially carbohydrates will actually make a big difference in that second uh, session for performance. How that kind of got a little bit bastardized was, you know, a lot of the 
bodybuilders read that and went, oh, yes, this is the, mm -hmm. the greatest thing ever. It's going to add more muscle and cortisol is horrible and it's going to take all your muscle. And the reality is you're just not really that fragile. Mm -hmm. um, and it gets compounded by what I saw people who were generally hard gainers who all of a sudden added, like we said, a pre and a post workout meal. And they're like, oh my God, I'm actually making gains now. It's like, mm -hmm. well, yeah, you just added more calories, more protein, yeah. more carbohydrates. Did the timing of it really make a massive difference? Probably not. And then you have the other end of the spectrum of someone who's like super low on calories, trying to maximize muscle to the highest degree. Yeah, maybe having a carbohydrate drink during or before and after, you know, can actually help. Mm -hmm. um, and the reality is, like you said, I agree. For most people, probably not training hard enough and have the rest of your life dialed in where it's going to make that much of a difference. Um, is it going to be a massive negative? Eh, I don't think so. Um, but also, like you said, if you find that you're gaining more fat than what you would like, you're probably going to have to scale back on calories from somewhere. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to hear that, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And, I, and it's, it's funny because that's like another visceral example of when I uh, was like, again, like 16, getting into my whole training career, I had, I'd, I'd heard stuff about, oh, you know, post-workout carbs. And so I'd mix like some uh, Gatorade powder because I heard that dextrose yep. was the, be the best sugar. Yeah. I was like, oh, I got, I got to, I got to, you know, my, my glycogen is getting depleted. I got to refill it immediately after training. And it was like, yeah. in reality, it's not like my hour of chest and triceps was you know, destroying my body at the time. It was like, again, something where I was missing the forest for the trees. Yeah, if you look at actual glycogen depletion studies, they are incredibly, absolutely heinous. It is usually done on a bike or a rower or something like that. So a very full body exercise, relatively high intensity, kind of longer-ish in terms of intervals, and then you rest a little bit and then you do it again. And then you wrestle a bit and then you do it again. Um, to even get to 60% depletion is mm -hmm. really hard. Um, and then there's some other work of exercising actually on purposely depleted muscles, right? So glycogen is stored for stored carbohydrates. So your listeners probably already know, mainly stored in the liver and also mainly stored in the muscle. So muscle mm -hmm. has more stored glycogen than the liver. So if I wake up in the morning, my liver glycogen, relatively speaking, is relatively low. So if I do some lower intensity fasted exercise, I am preferentially using a little bit more fat as a fuel, as long as the intensity isn't super high. It's done in a low insulin environment. Liver glycogen is going to be a little bit lower. Muscle glycogen is going to be fine. Right? You can fast for 48 hours, and unless you're doing a lot of exhaustive work, muscle glycogen really doesn't go anywhere per se. It has to be used by the local work that the muscle is doing. So some studies, like you can look at the sleep low, train high, and there's other methodologies, will actually train people again, an exhaustive method, try to deplete out a bunch of muscle glycogen, and then maybe just give them a little bit of protein and tell them to go to bed, mm. wake them up the next day, and then do another exhaustive session. So there you are prioritizing the adaptation on a cellular level, and it's costing you a little bit of acute performance. Mm -hmm. So something like that in the off season, I think may be beneficial and very high level elite athletes. Um, but the studies on that are like still, you know, they're pretty split, you know, Marquette right. showed pretty massive benefits. Gail didn't show a benefit. Um, so what I use in the flex diet cert is the concept of purposely matching your macros or purposely mismatching your macronutrients. 
So if I'm matching my macronutrients, so I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to do some weight training. Great. I'm probably going to need some carbohydrates to fuel that in some form, you know, maybe timing. We, you know, just had the discussion on that. So I'm going to match my macronutrients to the work that I'm actually doing. Ah, I'm going to do a lower intensity fasted session this morning. Great. So that's mainly fat that's going to be used. So maybe I'll do that uh, fasted first thing in the morning. I don't really need any energy to see a performance bump in that. So that's kind of a use stress model. So stress you can generally recover from, but you're going to get a positive adaptation and your performance is what you're prioritizing. So for athletics, that's going to be kind of an in-season model. An off-season or more an advanced model is Maybe you do take a couple of weeks. You've kind of maxed out your adaptations. You've kind of hit this ceiling effect. And like we talked about, maybe I purposely want to mismatch macronutrients. I'm going to just pound you into the dirt and have you do some exhaustive exercise without giving you more carbohydrates. So there I'm prioritizing the adaptation on a cellular level. Mm. I'm okay taking an acute you know, kick to the nuts in terms of performance because when I go back to that eustress model, Hopefully I'll see an increase in performance then because I have a little bit better cellular adaptations. So if you're purposely mismatching your macronutrients, I call that more of a distress model. You're going to accumulate a massive amount of stress doing that. However, if you control it, just like you would a weight training session, that may be beneficial in, you know, especially more advanced athletes. Mm -hmm. So again, that's where it gets confusing. Like what is your goal? If you're in season trying to, keep performance pretty good and you're trying to add lean body mass, maybe keep an eye on body composition, then generally matching macronutrients to what you're performing, I think is going to be good. If you're really trying to push it to the nth degree and you're a high level athlete and you've got the off season, so you, you don't need to perform at a high level for two, three, four months. Yeah. You can get away maybe trying to prioritize some of those adaptations then instead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'd not, been super familiar with that, but that makes a lot of sense. And it reminds me of a couple of things, which is one, um, one fitness podcast I listen to really frequently is, uh, the mind pump podcast. And yeah. so they, a lot of times, one of the recurring things that will come up is they're like, Oh, people argue about what's the best rep range for muscle growth. Is it high? Yeah. Like 10 to 15, is it lower like three to six or whatever. And a lot of times they'll make the case well, it might be for you just the the thing that you haven't done for a while. So if you've spent a number of months or even you know years doing only low rep training, going above in that 10 plus is going to be a different stimulus. And so it's really going to hopefully introduce some some new muscle gain. And I feel like that's kind of your point there. If you play with the opposite end of the spectrum, it's going to make your your ability and your capacity more effective. And the other thing that it reminds me of is I wanted to get to fasting eventually. And so I'm yeah. curious how that's kind of like the opposite end of the spectrum of, of um, the feeding sort of windows and stuff that we're talking about. And so like my personal experience with fasting is about six months to a year ago, I started doing a 24 hour fast once a month. And in addition, I generally try to follow an intermittent fasting window. It's not anything that's super strict, but generally just having dinner around six or seven and then not having breakfast the next day until nine or 10. So generally trying to get close to that 16 hour intermittent fasting window. Um, and so I'm curious what you feel like the benefits of that are. And then I guess my point to kind of tie it together is for me, the, the biggest benefit to the 24 hour fast is just the fact that it's really tough. And so I feel like it teaches me to be better at being uncomfortable. And so it's not even so much 
for the health benefit for me as it's like, okay, look how, look how malleable your body is when you want to make it uncomfortable by not giving it food. So I kind of apply that lesson to, are you always pushing yourself hard enough in the gym and stuff like that? It's just like more of a mental and emotional sort of, sort of sharpener for me in that way. Yeah. I'm a big fan of fasting. Again, depends upon what context who's using it. If I have Mm -hmm. a client who's HRV is completely screwy. Their life is insane. They chronically undereat when they're stressed. Am I going to have them do a lot of intermittent fasting? No, because fasting potentially, again, is a stressor. Doesn't mean it's bad, just like lifting is a stressor, right? We can get better from those things. We can become more anti-fragile. So I got into fasting was probably like over 10, 11 years ago now. I was looking around for something that would increase fat metabolism that wasn't necessarily exercise. Because uh, exercise can help. VO2 max is related to how much uh, fat you can use. And I remember coming across fasting. It was like literally like right when uh, Brad Pilon released his book, Eat, Stop, Eat. A buddy of mine was telling me about it. And I'm like, what? That's crazy. Like all your muscles are going to fall off your body. This is going to be a, this is a horrible idea. Not eat like muscle protein synthesis is going to go down. This is a disaster. What are you doing? He's like, no, man, it's been working really good. I'm like, oh. so I spent eh, like six, eight months looking at the research, you know, thinking that, oh yeah, this is going to be horrible. And there wasn't a ton of research, but it wasn't nearly as bad as what I thought. So I'm like, okay, well, I'll try this on myself. I've been doing some training in Arizona And at the time I had been eating, God, about every two to three hours. So I was one of those skinny eel shaped rakes. I started college at six foot three, weighing 156 pounds. This is like in college, like after your growth spurt, all this stuff. And I remember reading some stuff from John Briardy back in the day. And so I set my watch for every, you know, two to three hours and I had to eat some protein or eat some food. Yeah, I did that for a couple of years and you eventually got up to like 185 and kind of eventually the highest I ever got to is like 245. Um, so it worked, but this is like probably year three or four of doing that. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to do a 24 hour fast because that's what Brad said is best. And I like Brad, his stuff is awesome. However, I didn't factor in the fact that I had been adapted to eating every couple hours while I was awake. So I got to about 12 hours and ran across the street and was at a Chinese buffet for about three hours. (laughs) And I'm like, fasting's dumb. It's the stupidest idea ever. Well, no one's going to do this. And after a while, I did this twice, actually. And then I realized, oh, wait a minute. If I'm used to eating every couple hours, it would be like someone coming to my garage gym and being like, hey, you've never deadlifted before. Great. Let's put 405 on the bar. And if it doesn't (laughs) come up, I'll just yell at you to try harder, you know, unless you're you know, Andy Bolton or, you know, someone who's, I think his first deadlift was like 500 pounds or something crazy in high That's school. Crazy. Um, maybe obviously went on the first guy to deadlift over a thousand pounds, but, um, Oh, maybe I should have a shorter kind of introduction window. So what I started doing with clients then is to say, okay, Monday, you just do a 12 hour fast. The following Monday, just do a 14 hour fast. And so I take eight weeks, just like progressive overload to get them up to a 19 to 24 hour fast. And what I found was it actually worked well and compliance was like way better than I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be an utter disaster. I thought everyone's going to hate it. Um, but what I realized was that, like you said, having the option not to eat before fasting was really not an option for people. Like they never really considered it and their physiology wasn't really tuned to being able to use body fat as a fuel better. 
Um, so that was kind of pretty shocking to me actually. And to this day, I, I still use it a fair amount. Uh, in terms of windows and research and no one really knows what the exact protocol is per se. There's so many different types of fasting now it makes it really hard. And most of it is not done on performance athletes either or people who even lift a lot. So that makes it hard. 16-8 uh, is relatively popular. I think if your goal is body composition-ish, I think it can be helpful. I mean, I've used it myself. I think it can be good. You know, if your goal is to maximize every ounce of muscle, I would not recommend it to someone. Mm -hmm. So again, I think it depends on your goal. And I think not eating for a period of time does help people control calories. Um, theoretically, you have a longer period of low levels of insulin, which potentially could lead to using body fat more as a fuel better that uh, can increase metabolic flexibility. So I think there's a fair amount of health benefits to it also. Uh, so I do like it. Again, caveat being, uh, I don't think it's anything too special unless you maybe get into longer fasts. And then having people be trained to have that as an option, I think is super useful. And I was kind of surprised that most people before that did not really consider that to be an option. Yeah, I, I like it most for, like you said, because it's a pretty automatic way to control calories if you are mm -hmm. it's kind of like like i said how i'm so often eating the same meals and so i feel like a really key combination for me to have my macros fall into place but not necessarily always have to track is be eating similar meals and then also doing intermittent fasting so that the calories never usually go too out of control i feel like that's a good combination and the the other reason i like intermittent fasting or just fasting is because again as i kind of touched on in the past i've been so neurotic about food and it's funny you mentioned like the eating every two three hours because i was definitely on that train for quite a while and it was like yeah. oh you know if and you it works. stop eating yeah yeah but it's like i, I like no, like trying to not be scared of like oh if i stop eating you know my muscle like you said my muscle's gonna fall off but just knowing yeah. how <laughs> flexible and adaptable your body is i think that there's a lot of power in that and then also just being able to use fasting and not even necessarily as thinking about oh i'm going to go on a fast but like if you're say at the airport or you're you know you're doing whatever sort of thing where you're away from quality sources of food just not feeling like you're gonna faint if you don't eat for five six seven eight hours and knowing that you can wait until there's some higher quality food options i think is also really empowering yeah i agree at the end of the day like a lot of stuff i do with nutrition coaching is just demonstrating to clients that they're the ones that are in control. It's like, mm -hmm. yeah, your physiology is going to want to push you in this direction and we can try to change that physiology. So that's malleable. Um, but the psychology side of it, like you said, is also super important too. And, you know, I think just learning that you have the discipline of not eating, which I was shocked. It was easier for a lot of people. And I tried like super low calorie days. I tried one meal a day. I tried all sorts of different variations and like just having something super clear of a set time where you don't consume any calories was like by far in terms of compliance, the easiest. And I think it's because you've literally simplified their decision. Is mm -hmm. there a calorie in it? Okay, then nope, I'm not eating during this period of time. So you make it just really super simple, which seems to help compliance quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And I've told people about doing a 24 hour fast once a month and like, Oh my God, like, how do you do it? Don't you get super hungry? And I'm like, yeah, the thing is I, I feel like I get really, really super hungry around. So like, like I said, I'm usually cutting off dinner around seven at the latest and the next afternoon around two, three, four o'clock, I will get super hungry, but then it kind of seems like it's maybe for about an hour. And then my body kind of 
not that this is obviously any, anything scientific, but it kind of just seems to just accept that, all right, apparently no food's coming in right now. I, I don't have to keep being in this state of being hungry and needing food. And then eventually once I get to dinner, it's like, I'm definitely still really hungry, but I'm not like ravenous. Yeah. The other chart I use too, is that I'll have them report their normal meal post fast. And if that meal ends up looking like three times their normal calories or something crazy, you probably went a little too hard on your fast, mm -hmm. right? Cause I have some people who are just like, oh, I'm just going to white knuckle it the whole time. And then they go to eat and it's just kind of a disaster. It's like, no, no, if you can't do 24 hours, you're not a bad person. Let's just back mm -hmm. up to 17 hours. Cause I want you to have just a normal size meal. Once you're done, you don't need to do anything crazy post fast. And so I'll have them report. Okay. I did a 17 hour fast on Monday and here's the, the meal I had and even like send you a picture or something like mm -hmm. that. So that I have some, some control, right? Cause some very type A clients are like, well, if you tell me to do a 36 hour fast, I'll do it. I'm like, Mm -hmm. I have no doubt that you can do it. I just don't want the cost from that to be just astronomically high either. Mm -hmm. And it kind of goes back to the whole conversation about just, we are such creatures of habit and whatever yes. we get used to is becomes the, the status quo and the easiest thing for us. So I think that you, you find that again, the average person probably eats breakfast every morning. And so thinking about intermittent fasting until noon is probably a very, uh, novel concept. And so until you kind of get used to that for the first week or two, it might seem really hard and like, Oh, I'm starving in the morning. But a lot of times it's not so much that you are literally hungry for food. Like your body is asking for food, but it's just, you're adapted to, Oh, okay. It's eight o'clock. It's time to eat something. Yeah. I've noticed that too. Like, um, so when I'm working on body composition a little bit more, I'll usually push breakfast out in the morning. So I kind of did that this morning. Um, and I find that I wake up in the morning. I'm like, huh, I'm hungry. Mm -hmm. And part of it I realized was, yeah, I probably had less calories, but part of it I think is just habit, mm -hmm, right? Your exactly. body is used to eating right away. So I drink a bunch of water. I put some electrolytes uh, from element. I put those in, drink that, do some exercise, get some movement going on, maybe start on some work. And then I'm like, Oh, I'm not really that hungry anymore. So it's like you said, it comes in these kind of episodic waves too. It's not just mm -hmm. people have this, uh, your brain is kind of wired to think linear, right? So they get up in the morning, they go, oh my gosh, like I'm hungry now. Oh man, 12 hours, I'm going to be starving. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, it's probably not going to double, right? You'll probably still be hungry, but it's not going to be like three times as hungry as you were in the morning. Mm -hmm. right? It's not a linear response to you eat. I think it's also fun to think about, I love to compare to like, okay, how do principles of my diet compare to the ancestral way of living and eating. And to me, it's like when you think about someone, oh my gosh, I have to eat three times a day or I'd get so hungry. It's like, well, if you think about it, what, what are we adapted to evolutionarily speaking? Because a few hundred years ago, the people that are our ancestors that are essentially built very similar to us, they, they went days without eating because they could only mm -hmm. eat when they went and gathered a bunch of food or they killed something. And so we there's, that's just further evidence to me of look how malleable we are. We've just, we're in a condition where things are super comfortable as I sit here in my air conditioned apartment and I can get water or food whenever I want. Sometimes you have to remember how, you know, relatively recently we had to struggle for everything. Yeah, that was my argument. And I like the paleo approach. I think there's a lot of good things about it too. And it's gotten a lot better, I think, in terms of messaging from people over the years. But my argument even years ago when I presented at AHS and different conferences was that exactly what you said. If you're 
paleo man wandering around if you can't find a woolly mammoth like you probably better be pretty good at fasting and you can't mm-hmm. have all your senses go to complete shit either uh contrary if you happen to find honey which i agree was exceedingly rare you can find uh, videos of um, indigenous tribes that will climb these crazy ass trees just to get honey mm-hmm. you know because it's a very prized commodity that you you can't end up in an insulin induced stupor underneath the the honey hive because then you're saber toothed tiger food too mm-hmm. right so you have to be able to mm-hmm. operate on very low levels of insulin low levels of carbohydrates and then every so often like very high levels of carbohydrates too i agree they were rather much more infrequent than what we have um, today but again, you want to be able to operate on that entire spectrum. Mm-hmm. Well, it looks like we're winding down about the last 10 minutes here. And I've enjoyed this a lot. I, I think you're, you're quite the uh, wealth of knowledge. So I just wanted to make sure we hit one more thing that we've, that we've touched on a little bit in uh, this list of possible topics I have here. And that's micronutrients. And so what I'm curious, Pierre, uh, about as far as micronutrients is I always kind of battle based on the discussion the, the most recent thing we've been talking about eating ancestrally and how flexible we had to be in the past. So I guess my question is how easy is it or how likely is it that we can get all the micronutrients we need just from eating a healthy diet? And is there any supplements you recommend people to take, you take yourself? Like for me, based on the things that I've researched on my own and you know, positive influences like yourself and other people who are I've studied this stuff more than me. I, I, I take uh, magnesium and vitamin D because I see those as pretty chronically underdosed and hard to get enough of. But again, I think back to the ancestral times and it's like we talk about under underdosing of micronutrients, but it's like, well, what about the times when, when people were just eating, you know, only, like you said, only animals that they could hunt or stuff like that. And I guess, how does the whole micronutrient uh, idea play out for, for you? Yeah, I think micronutrients are super important. Uh, certain, we'll say people in the industry now are trying to vilify vegetables, which is crazy to me. Uh, and I get it. Like if, yeah, if, yes, if you have pathologies, your gut is a disaster, like, you know, don't eat things that have high amounts of fiber and have you run to the bathroom. Yes, Mm -hmm. I agree. Listen to your body, of course. Um, however, if you are a healthy person, you don't have any huge amounts of gut issues, dysbiosis, whatever it is then getting more micronutrients, I think, in is a positive. Some super interesting studies from like Julia Rutledge where they looked at natural disasters uh, like floods in North Dakota, uh, the earthquakes in New Zealand, I believe. And they had researchers go out and give them a supplement. One was a micronutrient-based supplement. The other one was a placebo. And what's interesting about it is that everyone had this massive stressor happen to them at the same time. So it's a way of looking at does enhanced micronutrient uh, help your body to handle stress more. Mm-hmm. And again, they use some surveys and some other things like that. But in general, it's from limited labs, but showed that more micronutrients was a benefit, especially if you're under higher stress, mm-hmm. which most people now are under higher mm-hmm. stress. And if you're healthy and you're training harder, that again is a stressor. It's not a bad thing. It's a, it's a good thing. So I think having more micronutrients is going to be good. Again, your body can store some of them, right? Fat-soluble ones, A, D, E, and K, like you mentioned, vitamin D, can be stored for a while. So we don't necessarily need to have them consumed every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do find that people are still low in vitamin D, although not as bad as what it used to be a couple of years ago. 
So in the past, if someone showed up with a low vitamin D test from their physician, I would tell them, eh, maybe you want to consider a vitamin D supplement. Now I want to have a longer conversation with them about what does their lifestyle look like? Because to me, that's an indicator they're not outside much at all. And mm -hmm. I think that that's probably a bigger discussion and gets into, you know, sunlight, circadian rhythms and a bunch of other stuff. So if we still can't seem to get it high enough via that exposure, then yeah, I think taking vitamin D as a supplement is fine. I don't think there's much of a downside to it. You know, toxicity with it's incredibly rare. Potentially you can pull too much calcium out, have some joint issues, that kind of stuff. Uh, Magnesium is the other one that tends to be low in most populations. If you want a super crude analysis to look for magnesium, just look at how many green things you're eating and know like green Skittles don't count like actual green vegetables uh, because at the center of the chlorophyll molecule is actually magnesium. So if you're eating a lot of green stuff, you're probably going to be okay in magnesium. The reality is most people are not eating a lot of green stuff, so they're going to be low in magnesium. Uh, James Laval has got different protocols for, you know, pretty high dose of magnesium he uses with some athletes. Because uh, we do lose some in sweat and other bodily processes too. I have used that a little bit with some clients uh, in terms of supplementation. Uh, if time is a limiting factor or I'm just trying to get their, their buy-in and build up this differential where they feel better. Because the reality is the action to taking a supplement is pretty small. And some of them can have benefits, especially when you're replacing a deficiency. So I may use more supplements up front with someone to get them to feel better and then titrate them off, right? So I may say, okay, hey, we're gonna give you more calcium. We're gonna give you some vitamin D, some fish oil, maybe a broad spectrum multi-nutrient blend and try to get you to feel better, try to get you to resolve some of your stressors. And then over time, we're gonna sort of titrate you back down. We're gonna increase the amount of green things you're eating. We're gonna to talk to you about trying to get more exposure outside in terms of sunlight, mm -hmm. maybe even some specific cold water fish once in a while. Um, so that's the general approach that I'll use because the reality is most clients are paying me a lot of money to feel better now, not necessarily in three months, but I wanna train them and I want them to have things that are stable and are able to do for the rest of their life also. Um, last one too that I do a fair amount with uh, is uh, mushroom extracts. There's some pretty good data on that, especially if someone has a lot of stress in their immune system, maybe under more stress. Uh, reishi mushroom is a good one for that. I use ones from uh, realmushrooms.com. I don't have any affiliate disclosures with them per se, uh, but they make high quality mushroom extracts, which are pretty popular now. Uh, you have to watch out with the quality of mushroom extracts because a lot mm -hmm. of them, in my opinion, on the market are not very good. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that uh, it, it, this probably, I mean, it's going to seem obvious to you, but a recent kind of uh, epiphany moment I had was in thinking about micronutrient, micronutrients and macronutrients and how to format my diet in a way that I, I get an appropriate amount of micronutrients is like they're not called micronutrients because they're less important, which is yeah. almost what the name <laughs> would lead you to believe, but it's just you need them in smaller doses. So they're, they're, they're not less of less importance at all. And I think what's important is that you try not to, which is, which is so easily, like we talked about the food environment, try not to fall into that standard American diet of heavily processed foods all the time. Because when you, when you think of something everyone's probably familiar with at this point, which is when you talk about an empty calorie that just has no micronutrients. And that's why is, why is candy so bad for you? Why is stuff like that? Um, 
so, so bad. It's not because it's necessarily inherently going to make you fat, but if you're consuming calories that have no micronutrient, um, benefits to them and you make that too big a part of your diet, you're probably going to eventually run into some, um, some deficiencies and something else that I try to do is, like I said, I mentioned a couple of times how I eat similar food so often, but I try to mix it up every once in a while, just because I know the benefit of different foods, having different emphasis sees of micronutrients. And I think I remember you saying on barbell shrugged, just like if you want some general advice, just go to the grocery store and eat a fruit or vegetable or two that you haven't eaten in a while, because it's yeah. going to give you this, this, this mix of, of micronutrients that you need in some way. Yeah. It's like all the grocery store experiment. I think I got it from my buddy, Adam glass years ago, just go to the grocery store, stay around the outside and just look for something that literally just looks good that you haven't had in a while. Like ideally, you know, maybe ever, maybe in the past year, it could be like, Oh, kombucha. I've never tried that. I wonder what it's like, or this pickled fruit or some weird looking spiny looking fruit. Just buy it and try mm -hmm. it. Eh, if you don't like it nah, it's not the end of the world, but yeah, you know, you're at least you're trying to, because everyone is like a creature of habit. And with some clients, this is really hard. Like for some clients, I'm literally like, I want you to buy a different type of yogurt. You could have it be Greek, 2% fat. I just want you to buy a different brand. They're like, oh, well, what difference is that? I'm like, probably pretty minor, but you don't want to do anything else that's different at all. So mm -hmm. I'm just trying to get you to do something that's just a little bit outside your comfort zone. Um, so it's just kind of that's the art of coaching, right? Knowing where people are and mm -hmm. how far you can, you know, kind of push them a little bit. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, uh, that's about our time here, Mike. I just want to say thanks for coming on the show. I, I had a lot of fun and I love getting to pick people's brains that have a lot of knowledge on all this stuff that I'm interested in. So I really appreciate you being able to come on the show and it was a, it was a good time. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on here. I really appreciate it. And, uh, People are listening, they can go to flexdiet.com and find out more about certification and everything there. There's a little waitlist button they can click to get onto the newsletter. Most of the information I have goes out over the newsletter. And once you're on the newsletter, you can just hit reply there that you heard me on the show here and I'll send you a free gift too. So yeah, All go right. to flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. All righty. Thanks again, Mike. Cool. Thank you. Hey guys, it's Jake again. I'd like to ask you if you enjoy the podcast to take a quick second and subscribe and rate the podcast. It really helps me out. And in addition, it'd be great if you would screenshot and share to your story. I'd love to reshare and have a conversation about what you thought about the podcast.